Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Simon Crosby, CTO of Swim.ai. Simon's impressive resume spans two decades in technology and includes highlights such as co-founder and CTO of ZenSource, co-founder and CTO of Bromium, and CTO of Data Center and Cloud at Citrix. In this interview, Simon discusses how Swim is solving the problem of stateless computing with its edge intelligent software that focuses on edge-based learning for fast data and continuous intelligence. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and ZenLayer. The featured sponsor of this episode of Over the Edge is Ori Industries. Ori Industries is building the world's largest edge cloud. Their products power the next generation of intelligent applications through unparalleled access to major communication networks worldwide. Ori is laying the foundations for application developers to seamlessly deploy to uncharted edge computing infrastructure across the globe. Learn more at ori.co. And now, please enjoy this interview between Simon Crosby, CTO of Swim.ai, and your host, Matt Trefiro. Hi, this is Matt Trefiro, CMO of Edge Infrastructure Company Vapor.io and co-chair of the Linux Foundation's State of the Edge project. Today, I'm here with Simon Crosby, CTO at Swim.ai. This is the second time we've had a conversation like this. The first time we spoke, the audio file was corrupted, but the conversation was so good, I asked Simon if he'd do it again, and he so kindly agreed. One of the things I really like about him is that he is delightfully opinionated, and he backs up those opinions with deep domain knowledge. We're going to talk about Simon's career in technology, the Edge AI he's working on at Swim, and of course, his views on the future of edge computing. Hey, Simon, how are you doing today? Hey, Matt. It's great to be back. Thank you. Yeah. So for the listeners who didn't get to hear the first recording, how did you even get started in technology? Oh, I have a PhD in computer science. I used to teach at the University of Cambridge, and then I started doing startups. So I'm on number five. So, so Cambridge is in the UK, but your accent doesn't sound British. That's right. I grew up in South Africa. And uh, what uh, what was your field of study in Cambridge? I'm computer science and mathematics. So uh, I guess in another era, you could call me a data scientist. And although your career, you're now back doing data, but uh, you did some virtualization technology. So, so what, what uh, drove you to become an entrepreneur? You know, the academic world of computer science is kind of cool. You get to do fun stuff, but it's a little bit rarefied. And if you really believe passionately in a thing, some tech, you know, you might as well get out there and try and change the world rather than just writing papers about it and publishing them. And so I, I hopped out and I did it. That's great. And what, uh, so what are you passionate about today? Oh, right now I'm passionate about a big change I see coming which is relevant to your world and mine, which is that we're moving from a world of big data where you could reasonably store it all and then think about it later to one where data flows are boundless and you need to process it on the fly. So you need to continuously process and analyze streaming data to get continuous intelligence to make your organization more responsible, whatever it happens to be. But the big change is that whereas you could reasonably think about 
big data as a way to store stuff and then analyze it. Now you can't. And why can't you? There's so much of it. Okay, I'll give you an example. One of our customers is a mobile provider, and we are currently dealing with about 20 petabytes of information per day. Okay, that's, it'll probably get to about a petabyte per hour. That's a lot. A petabyte an hour. Okay, so let's scale a petabyte for the listeners. How big is a petabyte? Okay, it's 10 to the 15 bytes. And this is just one mobile operator yeah. in probably one country. <laughs> right, and, and the application there is to continually optimize the connectivity between hundreds of millions of mobile devices and their radio network. So what you want to know is where every device is, where it's going, it needs to predict where it's going. You want to know how to tune the radios and how best to allocate the capacity amongst all the devices that can access the network. And perhaps relevantly, the, the status of a modern cellular network, I mean, changes every millisecond or even faster. That's right. And there are huge problems that remain to be solved. For example, in 5G, there is this great thing called slicing, which allows them to sell private networks to, to enterprises at the edge. But assignment of capacity to slices dynamically is an unsolved problem. So how, how does, how does uh, Swim AI address this problem? What does it do? So <clears throat> the cloud has been tremendously successful because of really two big things. One is REST, which is stateless computing. Any old service will do. And the other one is databases. So if you think about AWS Lambda, for example, you know, any old server can take the request, load my code, and then my code will update the database. Yay. But the problem with that is that stateless computing is a million times slower than the CPU. A million times slower. Okay. And so that means the difference between hours versus milliseconds in terms of getting a result. And so if you adopt an architecture which is stateful, when data arrives, you transform it you know, you transform data as as it flies past, as it were, in memory at CPU memory speed, which is a million times faster than this REST plus database approach. So stateful computing is a fundamental approach to what we do. And then beyond that, what you have to do is change the stack so that um, you deal with this notion of boundless data. So we're in this era, we have data flows which are boundless. They never stop. And the data within them is our ephemeral value. So you can't store it and get to it later because later it's useless. You really don't care that the light was green last Tuesday morning, right? At 8 or 7 and 13 seconds, you just don't care. What you care about is that some representation of the intersection can predict what's going to happen next, but you don't care about the past. So we have ephemeral data value and infinite data and you need to compute on it continuously. And so the notion of learning and analysis, learning and prediction is all based on changes to the idea that you have complete data. You have to continuously compute on infinite data, and that's fun. It's a whole new 
approach algorithmically and mathematically. So um, you say compute on this data. What does that look like? I mean, what what is doing the compute and what's it computing? And if I'm tossing the data out because it's ephemeral, but I want to improve my ability to predict, where does that improved prediction go? You spot all the key things. What Swim does is effectively build a model on the fly from data. So for everything that's represented in streaming data, we create what you might think of as a digital twin, but it's way better. We call them web agents, which represent that thing. And these are stateful objects. They're concurrent, so they continuously compute on their own data. They're in memory somewhere in a cluster or maybe a distributed application, and they can compute continuously. So they actively go out and acquire their own raw data and then incorporate that into what they know. Okay, so they analyze it, learn and, co and predict for themselves, right? So for everything that's represented in raw data, we end up with a concurrent object called Web Agent, which continuously processes its own raw data and analyzes, learns and predicts from that. And then it does this other cool thing, which is linked to other things that it's related to. So in the case of traffic, which I've used an example already, an intersection would link to all of its sensors. Okay, that's pretty obvious, containment. But it also could link to other intersections in its vicinity. And linking gives this concurrent object the ability to see the state of other things. And so we're building a graph, like a, a graph database, but building it in memory, where these vertices in the graph can continuously compute based on what they can see. And they compute and then stream the results. So uh, I'm imagining this, you know, all these little web agents and their connections between each other. And, uh, you know, I'm not an AI expert, so this may seem overly simplistic, but it seems an awful lot like how the brain works. I mean, is it, is it modeled after the neurons in the brain? And is that is that something or is that just a coincidence? It isn't, but it bears an uncanny you know, comparison to it, as you pointed out. So there's a nice way of thinking about it like this, which is that if I said to you, hey, Matt, do you like blueberry muffins? You know the answer to that because you've learned through your life. You didn't have to, you didn't have to phone your mom, okay, which is the equivalent of reaching out to a database, and you didn't have to go through all the blueberry muffins you've eaten in your life. You know it, okay. And so these web agents are concurrent entities which learn from their own data, right? And so what you find is these amazing emergent behaviors from collections of web agents, and these are self-assembling complex applications. And the cool thing about it is this, that let's go back to traffic again. As a programmer, all I have to do is define the relationship, say, between an intersection and its sensors and its vicinity for one, intersection, and then I can scale this thing. Data will scale the application at runtime using the entities in the data to create new web agents. So the application will just build itself and run. Okay, and that's okay for a small city like Palo Alto where I have a few hundred you know, intersections, but Houston has tens of thousands, okay? Or in case of my mobile carrier, I have you know, hundreds of millions of devices. 
Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, let's let's put a let's put a pin in the. I want to come back to emergent behavior, but let's talk about the traffic light example because I think it's kind of interesting. So you've got this installation in Palo Alto, and as I recall, you you were there's a a lot of data that you potentially could pull off a traffic light. Actually, why don't why don't you explain how you retrofit a city and how the data reduction happens because it's really interesting. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right, cool. So, so let's talk about edge in general, right? Because when we deal with old infrastructure like traffic stuff, now these the traffic infrastructure is thirty years old, and so the data is horrible. It's you know voluminous and ghastly. There's there's no Ethernet port on the back of the light, right? And so what we're getting is voltage transitions between relays on some legacy thing, right, in the city data center, right? And so we tend to get access there because they have standardized interfaces, but there's tons of it. You know, a city like Las Vegas is 60 terabytes a day. Um, Houston is hundreds of terabytes a day. So the first thing is that this ghastly form of information, which is voltage transitions and so on, gets transformed into this light is green. Okay, and the fact that this light is still green you can just throw away. And so you get massive data reductions by moving the computation associated with voluminous stuff close to the source of data. All right. And so there's a huge opportunity for edge computing there, which is to move the computation associated with filtering data close to the sources. And where does the transformation from voltage relay to green or red or yellow happen? Does that happen on the web agents? Yes. So there'll be web agents, which for every thing, every sensor in the city, but those will naturally migrate. And one of the cool things that Swim does is it moves web agents close to the right place to compute. Okay. And that right place is defined by their desire for memory, CPU, additional resources like GPUs, and their proximity to data source. Let me make sure I understand that. So part of the swim.a secret sauce is you are orchestrating all these web agents across potentially multiple machines in multiple locations, and you're using some criteria, like you said, access to availability of CPU, availability of GPU, things like that, to do that kind of orchestration? Yeah, so swim moves them around in real time. So they'll magically move around within a cluster. And so, for example, traits associated with a web agent like learn and predict might uh, migrate into the cloud. So in the case of traffic, the dealing with voluminous stuff at the edge will happen at the edge, close to the source of data. But learn and predict might happen in a GPU-attached instance in Azure. That's really interesting. So you mentioned, okay, you've got all these devices out in the field. Oh, we don't, we don't do devices, by the way. We're just software. No, no, I realize that. I realize that. Right. So there, there are the devices in the field, all the traffic lights in Houston or Las Vegas or Palo Alto. And that data hopefully is already being aggregated by the city in a centralized location. Otherwise, somebody's going to figure out how to do that. And then you have one web agent for every traffic light. Well, the cool thing about well, let's talk about the term web agent, right? So web means, part of the name is web, which means that the object ID is a URI. So as they move around, we always know where to find them. 
okay, so they can move around in the cluster and we still know where to find them. Do you use DNS to keep track of them? Bingo. Wow, okay, cool. Okay, and so things can relocate and we always know where to find them. More than that, we always know where their APIs are. So if you want to get hold of a streaming API for a particular intersection or sensor, you know it's URI and you just go for it. And so our UIs do this too. They just go for the particular thing you want to look at and they get the access to the state. Okay, so other than that, web agents are actors. That is, they receive data and they compute in it and they are stateful. And when you link to them, you get to see their current state. Okay, and yes, to answer your question, a web agent for an section has links to all the web agents for its sensors, maybe 80 or 100 per intersection in a typical city. And then it will link to its surrounding intersections, courtesy of that long and a geofencing exercise. In other words, every single object will link to its neighbors and they'll link to their neighbors. So the running application is a graph fairly complex graph of uh, linked things, web agents, each of which is linked to its own um, neighbors. Yeah, so all these web agents could be running on one or multiple computers in multiple locations, multiple racks, all of that, but it is the linkages between them uh, is representing the physical world, right? Yes, and you've hit an absolutely key thing, is that at my level, you don't get to say where. At your level, you absolutely care about where. That is, we want to exploit your proximity to the thing to compute close to it whenever we can. But at the application level, the person who develops the application called Learn Predict for a city doesn't need to know where. That gets sold by Swim at runtime. Yeah, and then you mentioned, you know, earlier how the what a dream this is for the developer. How do I make this system do my bidding? Yeah, it's very simple. And by the way, most of the apps are open source, so you know you can go to swimos.org and just start to play. There are a ton of applications in there. You're writing a simple, object-oriented Java application. So in the case of traffic, again, it would be the relationship between and section and its sensors and possibly its neighbors. So that program is probably, I don't know, a thousand or 2000 lines of code and you're done. But the running application could be terabytes worth of running stuff. In the case of my mobile customer, I mean, literally we're running in terabytes of memory in a cluster, which is tens of nodes and they're distributed across the country. But that application at runtime is built from the data. That's really interesting. And is this a, a new way of doing artificial intelligence? And the reason I ask that is, and again, I'm I'm not an expert in AI by any stretch of the imagination, but I've done enough reading on convolutional neural networks and deep neural networks and so on. And this sounds like it has some familiar parts, but I, I don't feel it's the same thing. Can you relate the type of AI that you're doing with swim.ai to the kinds of AI that we typically read about and hear about? Yeah, so first of all, I'm convinced that the state of the art will always be available in open source. And so it would be absolutely wrong to claim that we are innovating in the AI algorithms, right? Because yeah, why fight that? 
I mean, there are brilliant things out there. The right thing to do is to take a different approach to how you process the data through those algorithms, right? And so typically, if you look at something like Spark, which is just down the road from you, what you're going to do is take data off a disk and throw it into some predefined neural net. And the problem there is that somebody has to train that thing, right? And then you're off hunting data to push through it. The problem with that is it takes an externality, somebody to take data and train a model. Our approach has been, in all the uses we made thus far, is to use relatively straightforward, simple, unsupervised learning techniques. And by the way, when I say simple, some of them are astonishingly simple, like just linear regression. So a thing learns and predicts for itself. Okay, so so my my web agent for the traffic light at the intersection of X and Y is constantly refining its ability to predict when its light is going to go from green to yellow. Is that correct? Yeah. And more than that, based on its own sensors and its vicinity, right? Which is a very simple but quite rational view. Now, what can you do with that? In the case of traffic, what we do is we stream those predictions to customers. So they would go straight into Uber's Kafka. So if Uber wants to route a vehicle through the city, they get the current prediction for or future predictions for every light in the city. Okay? And their goal is to minimize transit time or something. And so it's a slightly different way of looking at the result. Instead of having one prediction for the future state of the city, I have every bit of the infrastructure in the city predicting its own future state. That's kind of cool, right? But and in the case of my mobile provider, you know, I have hundreds of millions of mobile devices predicting where they'll be in the future, in the near future. And then the algorithm, which is the optimal capacity assignment, takes that and allocates connection capacity across all of those different devices. Wow. And in the case of the traffic lights again, I imagine that, you know, in some future state, I could also connect to the under street sensors, right? And now my traffic light can relate to the nearby under street sensors and potentially on its own improve its predictive ability? No, we do that already, yeah. So every time a car crosses an in-street loop, we see that. And the interesting thing about this stuff is the DNNs are very simple. You know, maybe it's limited in terms of application, but you know, what we've done thus far, relatively straightforward, single hidden layer. When we initialize a DNN, it's initialized to random numbers. And basically you form an input vector from everything you can see. Imagine you're in an intersection. You can see your own sensors and those around you. Throw that through the DNN, predict the future, and then watch what happens. And then the difference gets back propagated, right? And you just go around that loop a bunch, like, you know, a week, and you're pretty good. The cool thing about this is that you can track whether your predictions are converging or diverging. If they're diverging, yeah. And then we're in deep trouble. But if they're converging, then you get to choose your operating point, which is the error rate that you're happy with. Or you can just leave them continually running. And is it, is it usually pretty obvious which of those it's, it's doing? Yeah. And by the way, you'd, you'd be embarrassingly 
well, maybe maybe a data scientist will be embarrassed by the, the fact that very simple methods can make the world a heck of a lot better. That is, you know, we have these very sophisticated um, AI tools today for big data. Yeah, they're awesome. But actually, a very modest improvement on the part of lots of little things makes the world a heck of a lot better. You know, that's a good that's a good life lesson. I mean, sometimes, you know, rather than installing like some clever app on your your Mac or your PC, you should just buy a bunch of three by five cards because sometimes a pen and a pencil or paper are, are better. That's that's really interesting. That's a really there's one other kind of observation which goes with this, which is that we shouldn't apply AI to situations where the marginal costs of being wrong is high. Let me translate that. Yeah, let's, let's, go, let's go into that. If the cost of being wrong is very high, like somebody dies, yeah, just don't do it. But if the cost of being wrong is marginal, who cares? Like my Uber may stop at a red light. Yeah, who cares, right? It's better. We're still better. And so there are tons of opportunities for making the world better where if you're wrong, you don't make it worse. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And and I imagine, uh, because you're committed to this company, that in general, you find you're able to make it better, even with, with relatively simple. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. Yeah, with surprisingly simple things. Yeah, you know, and maybe a after this, we should talk about it. But one of the things that we're doing in our network and data centers is we're extracting all of the operational information, all the OT information that nobody ever does anything with, really. So we've got stream of data coming off the HVAC equipment. We've got like 100 sensors. You know, we get air pressure, temperature, humidity, vibration, all these things. And our notion is that by having that information, particularly with real-time workloads and consuming it, you can do things like predictive placement of workloads, predictive failure of things tied to operational technology. And I'm wondering, do you did you use your own AI to improve the orchestration algorithm that you used to place workloads? Yes. Actually, no, not specifically for placement, but for another thing, which is security, which is pretty cool. Oh, interesting. Okay. Tell me about that. Okay. On the security side, you want to look to make sure that Swim is operating in a normal way. So obviously, it takes some definition of normal, but part of the problem is to introspect the running software and ensure that it doesn't display any obvious signs of having been tampered with. And so it's an important part of our security architecture in general is to continually introspect, to measure, and to be confident that we are still executing okay. That's really interesting. So let's talk about emergent behavior. So when I think of emergent behavior, and I want to make sure that you're thinking of it similarly, yeah, I think of like, you know, back in high school chemistry, where the professor would say, you know, no single hydrogen molecule is wet, right? No single water molecule is wet. But when you put a bunch of them together, this wetness emerges. Is that what you mean by emergent behavior? And can you give us some examples of some of the surprises you've seen? Because you, you seem to have delight in the fact that the emergent behavior is surprising. Well, there are a ton of really cool things in the traffic world. You know, just go back to Palo Alto. You know, there are times, say, pre-COVID, when, say, there would be a Stanford football game. What does that mean, right? So 
people are often worry about these kind of rare occurrences of things. Is there a web agent that, that attaches to the football schedule? No, you don't need to do that. Actually, it turns out that if you've seen one or two of them, they're very low probability, but they're in there somewhere. So you can learn. It's like it's a bit like blueberry muffins. I'm assuming you only have them once in a while. You kind of know you like blueberry muffins, but you haven't had one today, right? So it's there are emergent maybe there's memory in the process, right? Or or at least you when you distill this information, you can come up with quite compelling models, even though they're remarkably simple. Somewhere deep in there, incorporating this thing is a probability that traffic will behave in a particular way. But you can't predict things you've never seen. That's quite difficult. Now, another example in the um, mobile provider world, there are some really interesting occurrences, which is that at night, everybody goes home, and in the morning, they go to work, right? And that radically changes the workload on different parts of the network. But you can learn that, and that kind of emerges from this vast set of data from independently evolving things, right? And so you can derive strategies for dealing with effects that occur on multiple timescales. That's a, it's, it's kind of a, for me, a head exploding idea because I think of things like, you know, I've built business models and economic models in spreadsheets. And so you spend a lot of time like thinking about what formulas get you the prediction of like how much cash you're going to have and things like that. And in this case, it's more like, no, no, you just throw a bunch of little web agents that understand who their neighbors are and have a bunch of real time inputs and they're doing a little processing on it. and you come back later and just like, you know, sourdough starter, this thing has grown into this amazing prediction machine. And that just, that's just phenomenal. I mean, I don't even, I'm not even sure how to think about that. I don't want to make it sound too easy. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so, okay. So let's talk a little bit more about swim. So you, you mentioned open source. What is in the open source? What would I find if I went to the, the open source repo? So every, what's in open source is everything you need to build a distributed real-time application which does this, everything I've said thus far. Our model, I guess, is a bit, it bears comparison with the model of, say, data stacks or data bricks, right? Which is that you have these abilities, you know, deployability, manageability tools for making apps easier to build or introspect, which are proprietary. I see. So in, in a sense, what I was referring to as the orchestration layer, the, the magic that I just handed a bunch, of, a bunch of web agents and it figures out how to run them and make them all relate to each other. Is that correct? Yeah, it's open source. Yeah, that's really interesting. And is the open source something that you're providing because you want your customers to feel like, you know, there's, you know, there's nothing hidden and there's no like, long-term lock-in, someone else could build a competitive orchestration model for it, and or are you looking for contributors to an open source? You're actually looking to create a project? How you, what's your approach to open source? So it's it's in GitHub, right? So there are repos there, and swimmers.org. Um, it's a bunch of things. Sure, we'd love to be able to contribute. We bind to the fact that for strategic software, most devs are insisting on open source access, so they want to know that something is not going to go away. Maybe it's just 
maybe we should call it the Oracle Consequence. <laughs> you know, <laughs> people just aren't going to go for that one again. But, you know, plugins, for example, integration with Kafka, Pulsar, and so on, other brokers, databases, and so on, are all open source and need to be added continuously depending on, you know, use cases and customer needs. So it's really, we aren't relying on the fact we aren't relying on the community for innovation at the moment. We certainly hope that more and more people will contribute and take up the software and uh, start to contribute back. And then there are other areas where there are, which are of great interest to us, which is the continued evolution of uh, learn and predict kind of algorithms, right? Which draw on the experience of people like Google and so on and their capabilities, but taken into this new model where we're dealing with infinite data and the need to continuously learn and predict. And sometimes it's just straightforward analysis, but there is a whole class of algorithms where we want people to collaborate with us to, uh, to develop and contribute to SWIM. Yeah, and especially coming into this world where you know, we, we're seeing it already, I mean, you're talking about, you know, petabytes of data for one wireless network, let alone, you know, the three to five that you find in the United States that are not even counting the private networks, right? Let alone all the traffic lights, let alone all the street lights, let alone all these devices that are going to become sensorized. There's something really cool there. Okay. So if that's going to happen, then number one, there are not enough data scientists to build all the models to make this stuff work, right? Is there enough CPUs to run all the web agents? No, not enough data scientists, humans, to go off and build models. Okay, so just think of all the potential use cases, right? So this idea that the, the big cloud guys come at you with, which is just give us your data and then, you know, MLOps or something, right? It's all BS. They just want the data, right? And, um, you know, so we as an industry still have to solve this problem, which is that there are so many sources of data. There is a huge insufficiency of skill set, both in cloud in general, but also in ML. And um, so it's easier if we take this approach from the start, which is that things can kind of learn for themselves from observation. And then it's the composition of, well, what do all my things think? That's an interesting area. Yeah, so let's, let's, uh, let's do a little thought exercise. Let's project, let's say, five years into the future. And let's imagine this world that I see emerging, which is the, you know, the edge is just part of the internet, right? It's not, it's not this thing we're talking about separately anymore. And when you think about how you build applications, you know, decomposed of services uh, into services, that there's really a continuum that goes from the device in your case, you know, some central building in Palo Alto to potentially a micro data center at the edge of the access network to a regional data center to a centralized cloud data center. And you've got this continuum where you can place storage and compute and workloads and all these things. How, how does SWIM, how can SWIM or, or not play across that entire continuum? Tell me how that could work. You know, everybody's in this big fuss about cloud, right? And so if you were trying to distill cloud down to just a couple of things, it would be REST, so stateless computing, and databases, right? And so REST lets any old server do the work for me, 
and all the state is in a database. And the problem with that model, it's beautiful because it scales nicely. The problem with it is that it's a million times slower than the CPU. A million, right? That's the difference between hours and milliseconds. So computation today is a million times slower than it should be. God, that's stupid. Okay, all right. So we need to move to a model which is stateful. Okay, so, and stateful means stuff in memory has state, and when data shows up, you compute, and it's kept in memory, right? So you don't always focus on where's the database and how do I store. It's not store, then analyze. It's analyze, react, and then if you have to, store the data. By the way, most of the time, because the value of data, its lifetime is ephemeral, you don't store. Right? If I can learn on the fly, why do I bother storing that the light is green? Right? So this store then analyze approach goes out the window. You go for a stateful model where you compute continuously and then the application layer um, maps the underlying well the application needs on to proximity to data needs for memory compute other resources like gpus and i think there's an area which is really interesting relative to what you you know your area which is edge people always go on about the edge as being close to source of data and offering low latency yeah kind of but if the thing moves into another edge zone, everything goes, you know, to the wall, right? Or if I choose to store something in some edge uh, location, what happens if I need it somewhere else? Okay, so yeah, you got to move it, and that's slow. <laughs> so what Swim does is solve the problem dynamically at runtime by moving these staple objects around in memory at runtime. And by keeping all compute in memory, right? So everything is in memory. These stateful little objects learn, predict, and analyze their own data. And why bother storing, right? So for this category of applications, there is really no point in storing the raw data. And so you can easily integrate with cloud-based applications and so on. You can span multiple edge environments and everything is in compute and memory, and you might have terabytes of memory, but you're going a million times faster. Yeah, that's interesting. And and you as a software company don't care whether your web agents are running on the city of Palo Alto's computers or Amazon's. Nope, not at all. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And so there, are interesting, there are interesting consequences with regards to business model which are kind of cool. Yeah, let's talk about the business models. Yeah. How do you charge for this stuff? Yeah. So, you know, in my view, marking up bytes, no, bits per second or bytes of storage or bits of memory, or, it's tough because somebody else wants their piece anyway, right? It's either an edge provider or a cloud provider or a telco. And so, you know, customers don't, don't want to be hit twice for the same thing. And so in Swim, we charge only for application layer things. So really, we charge kind of on the base of web agents, which are application layer entities, which are learning and predicting from their own data. 
so, so I pay by the second or the minute or of how many agents? No, no, no. Just based on the number of them. Okay. The number of web agents that you have per year, say, right? Got it. And then from an enterprise perspective, instead of me charging the same amount per incremental web agent, you kind of want a log scale. You do. Because you want the incremental web agent to be arbitrarily cheap. You want the declining marginal cost for sure. You're right. <laughs> and, and that's working out pretty well for us. That's really great. And you want to encourage people to use more because that improves the intelligence of the overall system, which encourages people to continue using this. How do you select the granularity of a web agent? Because so I'm imagining, okay, a, a traffic light. It's got, you know, three things that can have state. Well, actually, it's got one state, red, yellow. Which light, which light is on? No, no, actually, an intersection has probably 80 or 100 sensors today. Okay, an intersection is not a real thing. I mean, in your head it is. But it's actually a bunch of approaches, a bunch of lights, a bunch of in-road loops, a bunch of pedestrian push buttons, and so on, right? So typically 80 or 100 sensors per intersection. But the intersection is an object which doesn't really exist. But the objects that do exist are those things I mentioned, right? So you're going to create these objects on the fly from data. Every time a car crosses a particular loop, I'll see information from that. And then each one of these sensors will have, in this case, in the case of traffic, they all have a Latin long. They all present a latitude and longitude. And then the virtual object, the intersection, kind of emerges from that, right? I'm going to join the intersection of the same Latin long as me, all right? And so they link up, right? And they build this graph. And then intersections can do a simple geofencing operation to look around themselves and see things that are a thousand yards away. And so a, a web agent, is it one way web agent per sensor? Yeah. Okay, got it. And then this concept of, of an intersection, as you say, emerges from a bunch of web agents because of their linkages, right? Yes, but also the problem domain. I mean, really what you're trying to do is solve a problem of how do my intersections behave, not how does red light in this particular lane behave, right? Yeah. And how, how do you how do you take the prediction that a bunch of web agents are doing that and turn it into a prediction for the intersection? Oh, so actually the intersections are these, I mean, in our case, the, um, these digital, tw digital twins of intersections, I guess, um, continuously solve the following problem. Create an input vector from all of their sensor elements, right? So every single sensor and all of the sensors that they can see in their vicinity. And then form an input vector from that, throw that through a DNN and predict the future values of their own sensors. And their own sensors could be a red light or a green light or whatever it happened to be, but it could be a pedestrian button and so on. There's an interesting aspect, which we can go into if you want, which is how do you do a time? But there are some computational efficiencies you can get there and a whole bunch of other things. But notionally, these web agents are continuously predicting like once a second what the future will be like, two minutes out. And then they just... So let's talk about time. Like you can't, you can't just leave that one hanging. What, what is, it, it, does time make things difficult? I mean, what were you getting at there? Oh, I mean, dealing with time is always hard in the sense that a prediction is a future state of a thing. What happens to 
to the next second or the second after that, right? And so the simplest thing, maybe the, the be stupid and see if it works thing, is to say, well, we predict the future values of this, of, you know, of all my sensors. What if I'm right? Let's assume I'm right, and then just continue, right? So each, if you want to look into the future, you basically assume you're right and just put that in as the future values and run the prediction again, right? And run the run it through DNN again. Now, your accuracy decreases as a result because you will be wrong at some point, but it gives you a, a massively mathematically efficient, for other reasons we can go into, way of calculating future values, which are based on the assumption um, that you were right uh, in the past, uh, being correct, you get great efficiencies that way, right? So that plus steps and convolution allow you to get good bounds on the future some way up. And in our case, we're computing once a second, you know, 120 steps out, no problem. Two minutes, we're typically within 100 milliseconds, and that's great for cars. Yeah, that's neat. So, so when you think about, you know, the infinite number of use cases that you could apply SWIM to, and you've obviously done a bunch of them, ranging from radio networks to traffic lights, what application do you see as being super valuable, but that you haven't yet applied it to? Like, what, what excites you about the potential of SWIM to help solve? So, you know, first of all, I think we've seen some things at scale. And we've seen the model works really well. So I'm looking for applications at massive scale, like truly massive scale. And, you know, petabytes per day is no problem. Okay. So, and then can I imagine them? Yeah. No. You know, let's say people go from play. The cool thing about the tech is this, that it's a million times faster because everything's in memory. And... It's typically you need about 10% of the resources that you had to have before. So if you, say, compared with a big data type architecture in the cloud, you might go from 500 nodes to 50. Okay. So it's really, really cost effective because we're just taking use of, you know, we're really taking advantage of CPU memory evolution at the speed of Moore's law. So what's working really well for us is organizations that have got huge infrastructures at scale already. I can see enormous applications in APM, application performance management, or you know, ones like yours where you mentioned you have tons of data but no, really, no real way of drawing insights from that. I can see some huge opportunities there. What I really want is people to go and play. I'll give you one last example, which is kind of cool. In a manufacturing facility where we have every part labeled with RFID tags and lots and lots of RFID tag reviews, thousands of them. The original IoT. Yeah, right. Each tag gets seen by lots of different sensors. So think of a digital twin, a web engine for every tag. Just create one on the fly, millions of them, no problem. And one for each, each sensor. Whenever a sensor sees a tag, it just basically says, hey, I saw you, and here was a signal string. And the obvious thing for a, a web agent for a tag to do, a digital twin of a tag, is to compute where it is, to triangulate off 
the different uh, base stations, right? And it knows the signal strength. It can learn the attenuation in different parts of a manufacturing facility and so on. And pretty soon, you've got tagged items which can tell you, the digital presence can tell you where they are. Okay? And then you can say, tell me all the other tags within three meters of you. And you can see parts come together to make, you know, a complex item like an airplane. It's pretty awesome stuff. By the way, here's the big fail. That system runs on two, two Raspberry Pis. And so the learning is if I can build something which runs on a Raspberry Pi, I can't charge you a million bucks. <laughs> and okay, and what's the solution? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe dress it up in some big case or something. Put the Raspberry Pi in this rig, really big box with a lot of blinking lights. Yeah. Or stamp the Oracle logo on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I Simon, I I have a couple of last questions. This has been an amazing conversation. Um, so, if you could, you know, look out, let's say eighteen to twenty-four months, and think about, you know, there's because a startup companies like we're always at the mercy of everybody else's pace right? Like customer adoption, technology, rollout, all of this stuff. If you could go into the future and kind of nudge, you know, tip over some of the dominoes in this, this path towards like Nirvana for Swim AI, what, what would you push on? What would you accelerate? So we've been on a tour through IoT. And one of the things that's been tough there has been that although a lot of organizations are trying to get to industry for or something else, they fight a battle, which is that the further out you get, the closer to the real edge, the more people are interested in vertical outcomes. They want a better oil rig, but they don't want all the different pieces and they want to go make it. Maybe they don't even have the skill set to go and build it. So getting there for a lot of orgs is aspirational, but not easy. And so we found there that customers tend to want to buy solutions. So if you look at, say, C3 or AI, right? They're a solution company, and they'll come in and solve your problem. Um, and they're less interested in building their own solution from software components. So what we're doing is working with orgs like carriers or people who have the skill set to build their, their IT is their business. They just have assets at huge scale already, and they are magical for us. So if I had a, a magical spell, it would be to move the broader set of industry participants faster down the path of gaining the benefits of IoT. That's really interesting. You know, there's a, a common trope in the container uh, container, you know, I mean like Docker, the container world, also with like uh, continuous deployment and continuous integration. And the idea is that the thing that's hard are the cultural changes, not the technology. A lot of the technology exists. It's just the culture changes. And it sounds like you're finding something similar that, I mean, I mean, I can imagine if I'm, if I'm used to consuming petabytes of data and pushing it through my Kafka, Spark, Hadoop, you know, whatnot, it's, I mean, you're going you're to get me to throw out my data by prying it out of my cold, dead hands. I mean, it must be really hard culturally to get to the point where like, no, no, you don't just rely on this little web agent to predict the 
Yeah. I'll give you a, a good example there. Here's a great example for you. We did failure prediction for a manufacturer which was assembling printed circuit boards. And the learning is this. If you call Freddie back from lunch and the machine is not about to fail, you're in deep trouble. And yet, learning and prediction is fundamentally a statistical thing. And you will be wrong. Right. right. So it's gonna yeah, it's gonna fail sometimes, and that's how it learns. Yeah. So and yet for this manufacturer, you know, things failing and breaking was part of the cost of doing business, so it was all computed in. So when Johnny got pissed off that you had called him back from lunch and the machine wasn't about to break, he was ready to throw you out, right? And that was hard. Even though on, on average or whatever, you were better, it's just hard. Yeah, the law of unintended consequences. Well, with Simon, so people can read about more about swim.ai at swim.ai. If people want to get a hold of you online, what's the best way to do that? Oh, I'm Simon at swim.ai. Wonderful. Simon, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you for coming on and re-recording this interview with us. And uh, I hope you have a great day. Thanks so much. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven. Vapor.io, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, Zenlayer, and NetFoundry. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate five stars and review, and share the show with someone you know who might enjoy it. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. The featured sponsor of this episode of Over the Edge is Ori Industries. Ori Industries is building the world's largest edge cloud. Their products power the next generation of intelligent applications through unparalleled access to major communication networks worldwide. Ori is laying the foundations for application developers to seamlessly deploy to uncharted edge computing infrastructure across the globe. Learn more at ori.co.